Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I am your host, Josh Schlossberg. For this episode, we have Joseph Scalia III, Saya D. He's a psychoanalyst in private practice in Livingston, Montana, on the northern reaches of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, and a member of the Lacanian School of Psychoanalysis of the San Francisco Bay Area. Dr. Scalia is a theorist activist applying psychoanalysis to his activist practice, retrospectively in his former presidency of the Montana Wilderness Association and currently in his presidency of the Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance. Welcome to the Green Root Podcast. Ah, good to be here, Josh. Thank you for, well, for all your work in your podcast. I've listened to a number of your interviews now, and so I have a really good sense of the um, ethical thrust of your work, and thanks for um, having me on the show. For sure. Yeah, well, we overlap in a lot of our thinking, and you also have a lot of information that you're putting out there that I've done a little bit of research on, but because of your background and expertise, you are far more knowledgeable than me times probably a thousand. So that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast. You can educate me and you can educate our listeners. So let's just get into it. So some of the stuff that you were talking about is this concept of social, social psychosis or psychotic group processes as they occur in what I call the mainstream environmental movement. So these are the typically larger, well-funded environmental groups that seem to have not so much a towing the hard line perspective on environmental issues. So tell me your thoughts on that. Get started however you like. Okay. Yeah, um, I think that's right. Um, I think there's probably a uh, if you will, uh, if you just bear with the term, a dialectical twist that that would say it's not just the mainstream environmental group getting caught in um, basically what psychoanalysis calls defense mechanisms, like ways that we um, keep out of consciousness distressing things that um, we don't have a way to deal with or that we've just failed to bring into language in the first place. Um, so like in the mainstream group, there's, there's, well, they are the ones with the power, the mainstream environmental group, they have the funding, they've got the political power that comes with the funding that comes with the support by the people who are funding them, who are, um, the power elite of, of this country and to some extent of the world, um, insofar as we're now globally capitalist. Um, but, you know, I think it's important not to rule out critiquing the grassroots um, side of the environmental group too, kind of like how, you know, it's easy for a leftist to critique Republi the Republican party to the exclusion of critiquing the Democratic party, which I think is a terrible mistake, especially when you look at how, as Chomsky, amongst others, have said, we're a one-party system, the Capital Party. Um, and so it's just, you know, which, which way, you know, where does one's defensiveness come into play? And I mean, the, that's a, a hard thing. It's, it's hard to be human. It's hard to not get caught in um, traps of, of thinking. Yeah, well, I think that's a great summation of the issue, because I think far too often we just get into policy discussions or talking about data, and we're not really going to the root, which I think is certainly psychology. So why certain individuals believe certain things, why organizations and movements do certain things. And I think that's totally fair to include some of the grassroots in that, of, of course, I think. I think obviously a lot of it does apply to the mainstream, but not just the mainstream. So that's a really good point. So in terms of what we see a lot, which those of us who are wilderness advocates, we see a lot is we want to protect as much ecosystem as possible. And then we see certain organizations that have environment or wilderness in their name. And they're like, well, we're only sort of interested in doing that. Sometimes we're going to keep, what my old boss at Native Forest Council, Tim Hermack, would call splitting the baby. So we keep doing it, 
and half and half and half. And I understand the concept of compromise. We do sometimes have to compromise on certain things. And maybe back in 1700, that's when we compromise on, all right, you get to have this land and then we've set this land aside. But anymore with everything hacked to pieces, there's, in my opinion, there's really no more compromising uh, in regards to a lot of these landscapes. So what do you think is going on? Yeah. What's that? Yeah. What do you think is going on in the minds of those who feel like compromise is the best method? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a big and difficult question. Um, Let me come back to it, I think, by commenting on some of the things first commenting on some of the things you've just said. Um, yeah, I, the collaborate, it's the collaborate and compromise model I've taken lately to calling it the, the um, never ending subdivision model, subdividing of the land will just keep subdividing, keep subdividing any last little contested or currently at the moment contested piece of wild land is automatically open for subdivision in the collaboration and compromise model. The idea of keeping all of any contested land wild is off the table if you want to be included in the, the parties who participate in the collaboration and compromise. You're, you're not allowed in the door in the first place. It's kind of like when Max Baucus did the Obamacare hearings way back in the beginning of the Obama administration. The, the single payer advocates were not allowed to participate. That was not going to be part of the negotiations. <laughs> Same thing here. Um, it's kind of, and that, and well, take note, that was Democrats. Um, but so, well, let me go to your question. What's in the minds of those folks? You know, I, I want to say I, I, that I have to be cautious about that, that I, as opposed, that is, I, it's easy to be presumptuous in answering a question like that. Um, there are, you know, there are some things I feel I can answer pretty authoritatively and unequivocally and others where it's like, no, that would be um, uh, basically narcissistic of me, you know, assuming I know something I don't and projecting my false knowledge onto somebody. So tough differentiations to make sometimes. But um, gosh, I don't know. Let me answer it a little obliquely. Um, You know, there there is um, there is a dominant environmental group or environmental community, obviously, and it is, you know, it's the big greens, and they are they have come in the, in recent decades to be um, more and more reliant on big corporate money for their funding, and they have grown their budgets frighteningly astronomically as they've done that. And those monies that upon which they're dependent come from um, a power elite within the capitalistic system who is interested in keeping its power and its wealth and in keeping the capitalistic system. So anything that even could hint at a different socioeconomic order is, is um, banned from consideration from get-go so there is that and i don't i don't think that folks in those groups sit around and think all the stuff i just said and said yeah we know that and we're doing it we're participating in it because we get this funding i don't think it's that way at all um in fact i mean I I have some culpability in the progression of the damn collaboration and compromise model, I I will say, or some damn culpability in the collaboration and compromise model, because when I was president of of Montana Wilderness Association, I naively um, was part and parcel of promoting the, the beginnings of that for MWA. And, you know, my motives were were um, benevolent. 
but you know, I came to see the rest of the story. Um, and, and so I, I, I think it's similar for the folks in, in the staffers and the board. Well, hmm. I think it's, a, I got to wonder about some of the board members. One must wonder perhaps the, the ultra wealthy of them, but I think even for them, it's true. Certainly let's just say more assuredly, I, I think that they think they're doing the right thing, but I, I think they aren't really allowed to think outside the box. It, it puts them in harm's way to do that, really. So I don't know. Let me ask you to reorient me. No, well, I, I, think, that, I think that does explain a lot. I think it goes really deep in terms of looking at belief in certain economic systems and anything they sniff out that in terms of an individual who maybe has a deeper critique, it's just, it's, it's not overlapping with their worldview. So they're immediately going to shrug that off. But in terms of the individuals, yeah, I don't think any of the individuals involved with these wilderness groups, these mainstream environmental groups hate nature or anything like that. I think they they're trying to be practical and saying that this is the way things work and you all are pie in the sky, but you have to ask the question after a certain point of time and us losing over and over again and whittling down what's left, if they even really believe that themselves, which is why I think this whole psychological aspect of likely denial or the whole, the stages of grief, which I know is a bit overused and, and not entirely accurate, but probably some of it might apply to this? Do you think so? Like that whole denial aspect is a piece of it? Yeah, let's, let's, let me go into that at this point. Um, yes, I do um, very much so think that. Um, there is more and more an obvious, um, you know, ultimate collapse of the environment uh, that the planet is facing. You know, it's not just global warming and or climate change. It's, it's multifaceted environmental collapse and subdividing of remain, continual subdividing of, of remaining potentially preservable wild lands is contributing to that collapse. And, um, I think a lot of environmentalists essentially do what um, the psychoanalyst Christopher Bolas calls negatively hallucinate that um, or negatively hallucinate um, the contribution of, of subdivided remaining wild lands to environmental collapse. It's like, I will not see what's right in front of my face. So it's not like a conscious decision, I'm not going to see it, right? Defense mechanisms by their very nature aren't conscious, you know, so repression, denial, projection, those are defense mechanisms that are in, you know, common uh, parlance for, for Americans. Um, there are many others, but I, I think most people know those. And, um, and so, you know, we don't conscious, we don't decide we're going to repress something. We don't decide we're going to project something. We don't decide we're going to negatively hallucinate something. And, but I do think they do that. The, the, to see the ill effects of the subdividing is horrifying and painful. And there is grief, um, to see what we've already done and what we're at danger of doing there's there just is grief and it's hard to hold it's hard to contain it's hard not to want to throw it off and defend against it so so there's that that happens i'm going to just link up a few elements here in this this psychoanalytic psychology of the thing um, and I differentiate, I, I put the modifier psychoanalytic just um, parenthetically um, because uh, 
psychology as a field has also succumbed to essentially the economization of everything, like um, not to say things that allow sort of free thinking by mm -hmm. its patients. Um, this more and more has happened to the side professions as a whole. Um, partly you see it in the medicalization of the mind and uh, psychopharmacology being so privileged. And oh, I have bipolar. It's like, a, it's this thing I caught in the air. Um, and this is medicalization and, and de dehumanization, desubjectification of the human. But so, um, so a psychoanalytic look at, at, at this, or, or let's look some more at the psychoanalytic psychology of this, not the mainstream psychology that is. So what happens is, um, <laughs> I, I just derailed myself with a, another footnote, but I'll, I'll leave it footnoted. Um, what, well, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add to the footnote. There's another, there's another um, way that psychology has, has dehumanized um, the patient, the, the subject, and it's that um, we're not going to look at the unconscious. We're not going to look at what the person is not dealing with that returns in symptomatology will instead just treat the symptoms. Um, that's the difference between what's called evidence-based therapies, which are promoted as wonderful because they have evidence. So it's this term that makes it sound great. Mm -hmm. And, and basically the psychoanalytic therapies. But so, okay, that this is the world we're in, right? It's like everything has been economized. Um, both Cornell West and, and uh, uh, Wendy Brown philosophers both talk a good deal about that very um, eloquently and demonstrably. Um, but so then back to the environmental movement with all of this, what's happened is um, for environmentalists in general, people who care about the land and who want to believe it can be well taken care of um, or, or open to these dominant environmental groups, often called the big greens, um, who have the ability to, to get their message out to the public in very um, well-crafted form because they've got the money to really spend the time and the effort and the education to learn how to do that. And then they've got memberships who, um, who hear their message and support them and, and believe, oh, wow, look what you're doing is taking care of the thing I'm afraid of. And so this is, um, this is the social psychosis. This is the, the psychotic group processes. So there's um, hallucination, in this case, negative hallucination, I'm not going to see a thing. And then there is um, a delusion of grandeur, like, you know, I am so in, in individual psychosis, it's, it's, you know, someone an individual is, is grandiose and grand is believed to be grand. And here it's like, well, the the big greens are grand and they are taking care of things. And um, all I have to do is, is trust them. And so this happens on a group wide level. And then the big greens become kind of um, in a manic sense, um, believing in their own uh, grandeur and their own ability. So, I mean, here we get back to motive for staffers um, that we started to talk about. They can believe, wow, we're doing great things and they can believe in what they're promoting about collaborate and compromise. And, um, and so memberships and staffers uh, kind of reinforce each other and so yeah, you have a, a kind of a group psychosis with, with none of the individuals being psychotic. They're probably all ordinary garden variety neurotics as 
like you and I, as psychoana psychoanalysis would talk about. Um, so, um, yeah, that's that's kind of in a in a nutshell. Oh, let let me foot, let me elaborate one other small point. In Montana, there's particular and I think fast moving danger um, that I think is informed by what I've just said. So a thing that happens um, in some psychosis is um, a kind of a, um, a megalomania develops like, like delusions of grandeur evolve and get really fired up and excited and um, individually for a person, but in a group, this can happen too. And I think it's happening to Montana Wilderness Association with their collaboration and compromise on the Gallatin Forest. They're like, this was wonderful what we did. What I would say what they did was they seeded um, a huge part of, an, of a critical, hugely important, wilderness study area to a recreation area for mountain biking and motorized recreation. And they want to now apply this to remaining forest service wilderness study areas around all around Montana. And they're promoting this as a wonderful thing. So that's kind of frightening. Um, but so that I would say that's just a progression of a psychosis, a group psychosis that has been in existence for a while. And now it's it's ramping up. It's like psychosis on group psychosis on steroids. It's megalomaniacal. Now we will do this wonderful thing to all WSAs. So there I will break again. Sure. That makes yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you taking the deep dive because I think it's really important because this stuff keeps happening. And those of us who are concerned about this. Well, we haven't been super effective at stopping it. I know a lot of us have been speaking out and we've certainly called some attention to it. There's been more scrutiny. We've maybe even slowed it down. And in some cases, yes, there have been lawsuits to stop it. But I think, well, all of us have to acknowledge we're losing, right? Those of us who are really concerned about what these groups are doing, we're kind of losing. The groups themselves should acknowledge that overall we're losing in terms of protection of the natural world. So one of the pieces that always kind of confused me in terms of the way these folks view advocacy and, and maybe there's something you can comment on here or not. So the way I look at a role as what an ecosystem advocate, that's a, that's a term that Shannon Wilson, he's a mentor of mine out in Pacific Northwest. He started using that term. I really like that it's ecosystem advocate. So we're fighting for our clients. So we're basically like an attorney and we're saying our client is not guilty, your honor. And we're, we're pushing all that we can to say, not guilty, not guilty, right? This, this is proves his innocence. We're fighting for his life. And instead it seems like a lot of these groups, the way that they're doing their attorney thing is like, okay, so we're, we're definitely going to put our guy in prison for a little bit, but not so much. So they, it's almost like they go right into the plea bargaining. And if there any attorneys who are listening to this will probably hate how I'm butchering this, but, <laughs> but bear with me. So it's basically like right off the bat, we're like, all right, we're going to admit he did this. And I think that's something you do if your client has, is guilty. But the thing is we're defending nature. Nature has done nothing wrong. There's no reason for us to be giving up any more of it at this point. Again, in the past where there was tons of it to choose from, that might make some sense, but everything has been whittled down. And so now, even if it's not housing development or if it's not extraction, it's, it's forms of recreation, which we've done some podcasts on, and it's more than just people walking through in, in their hiking boots. There, there are real issues there. So it's almost like they've lost the plot in terms of what their role is. And so maybe it does tie into they start thinking they're more important than their cause. Do you think that's what's happening? That that what is what or who is more important than their cause? That, that they that they the the collaborating environmentalists they stop focusing on what their role is, which is to do the protection as much as possible of their client, which is nature. And instead, it's kind of about them being flashy in the courtroom. It's them getting prestige they're kind of selling out their client for their career in a sense. 
Yeah. Okay. You know, I, I think you would have to analyze each person in that role sure. individually to make that claim about any ind given individual. And I, because I think that it, it must vary a lot across individuals in that position. And so I think, um, Oh, I think that they really believe they're doing the right thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by and large. Sure. But I, but I, but I, I think that I, I think that grassroots environmental groups need to be two things. One less timber. So in taking that on, mm -hmm. In taking on this blind spot for big greens, yep. um, I think grassroots sort of non-NGOized, if you will, you'll deduce, I think, my meaning, and you may already know that concept, um, non-NGOized um, grassroots environmental groups um, make kind of uh, two mistakes. They, are, they don't want to critique um, and the NGOization of, of the big greens. They don't want to look at sort of, they don't want to openly talk about um, the role of capitalism, especially neoliberal capitalism of the last 40 years um that ushered in on steroids with reagan and thatcher in the early 80s and just has progressed behemoth like behemoth since then um as though it's like no we're not going to talk about that we're only going to talk about just the importance of preserving the land mm -hmm. like somehow it's taboo i've encountered this as uh, in the grassroots side some of my grassroots environmental colleagues are uncomfortable with my critiquing the NGOization of the mainstream groups um, and that I should somehow only talk about how our vision is superior um, and demonstrate how it's superior, which I think is important to do, but I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about this critique I'm talking about. And I, in fact, I think it's, it's important to do. But the other thing I think grassroots groups sometimes get caught up in, um, and so do the mainstream groups, but I think for grassroots groups to hold our own feet to the fire, um, we get caught up in our own demonization of the mainstream groups. Mm -hmm. And, and so, we can become hateful mm -hmm. and um and i think we don't do ourselves any favors when we do that and i think that itself is a projective defense it's mm -hmm. like i'm not going to deal with um something disturbing that's pushing its way into consciousness in me and um instead i'm going to um you know, something about myself, right? That I don't want to yep. see. I'm going to instead see this other as a demon and I'm going to speak, you know, contemptuously about them. And I think too many grassroots environmental groups um, or individuals and, and maybe sometimes groups, but I think it's more individuals within groups. I don't know that it's a, um, a collective process or phenomenon. Um, but, you know, do talk contemptuously about the mainstream folks. And I think that that discredits then the grassroots spokesperson. Yeah. It's too easy to them just say, look, look at how them they're just so, you know, whatever. And they're all sorts of disparaging descriptors of them then. Yeah, I think that's a totally valid critique. I certainly have been a part of that more so in the past 
But I, even to this day, I try to check myself in terms of, you know, I'm critiquing the process. I'm, I'm critiquing maybe a way of thinking, um, critiquing the structures behind it rather than, yeah, just focusing all on, certainly not on individuals because I always try to bring myself, oh, but I know that guy. He's, he's actually a good guy. He actually cares about this stuff. So that helps me humanize it and personalize it. But yeah, I fall into that trap um, maybe as much as maybe slightly less than a lot of folks. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be critique. And I, and I know you're not suggesting that. It's just that we shouldn't be personalizing things. We shouldn't be bringing as much rancor and hatred and what you're suggesting might be some aspect of even projection for our own failures onto others. Mm, that's a great point. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What we might be projecting there, our own failures. That's really interesting. Well, cause we are, I mean, I, the thing that I, I do feel like is important to point out over and over again is that we are as a movement, whatever you call it, mainstream grassroots radical, we are losing, right? Right. It's one, of, it's a movement that every year, things in terms of landscape don't improve. You can point towards certain things that are more positive for sure. Northeastern forests are recovering in certain species, but if you look at the big picture, it's pretty hard to deny that things are spiraling down the drain. Unraveling is how I prefer to look at things. It, it continues to unravel. Maybe we ravel back a strand here and there and then seven other strands unravel. So I think critiquing what's going on is necessary but yeah do we have to make it so much about the individuals and the groups maybe sometimes but i i personally believe that you can you know shake someone's hand maybe not until covid's over but shake someone's hand and smile yeah. in their face and be like i told i disagree with you on this thing i'm, I'm probably going to keep pushing back but i understand where you're coming from also i i don't think there has to be hatred in that process and i do think it well, it eats us up if we get too involved in it. And it does make us less credible. We just come across as these angry, unhinged individuals. And what I've learned as somebody with heterodox opinions is that I'm already going to be a black sheep. I don't need to also be labeled as an asshole on top of it. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. But I really like what you say about going deeper in terms of so where this is all happening. I mean, so you talk about the NGOs and they are based on foundation funding and their foundation funding is based on certain investments that is dependent on a certain economic system. So the idea that these, even if these foundations in the end of the boards, members of the foundations are genuinely, we'd like to protect some nature. They don't, they're not gonna pull the rug out from under themselves, the thing that has made them possible to even fund these organizations. So I just wanna read a quote real quick from your, piece in Counterpunch recently. It's um, was this last week. Terra and Deimos, I believe it's pronounced, a unified ethics for conservation and the human quest. And it's a great essay. I definitely encourage people to read it. But this one paragraph in particular, maybe we can delve into aspects of this. Thus, we need a socioeconomic system that is consonant with and values quietude, that state of calmness, stillness, and security found only when living receptively inside our own minds and bodies. Such a state is at odds with the constant growth and expansion that our existing socioeconomic model requires, and instead at minimum calls for a steady state economy with a constant amount of capital and a stable human population. So talk about any of that. <laughs> God, yeah, that's a loaded paragraph, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you went to that. Thank you. Um, yeah, let me talk about, um, and after I say these things, if you want to bring me back around to other aspects of, of what you've just read that I um, omit, please do. Um, the quietude, um, yeah, that's just so huge. Like the way, so what's happening with collaboration and compromise is, um, well, not, not to underestimate where extractive industries may be players at the table too, and, or, um, enabling this, uh, the, this, 
misuse of a so-called environmental um, action, environmentalist action um, to occur. But, but so not to underestimate the extractive industries part in that, but, but the most um, dangerous currently, uh, the most dangerous element in, in these conservation groups who aren't the, or in these collaboration groups who aren't the identified and pretty much necessarily mainstream um, environmental groups, it's the, re it's recreationists. Mm. Um, so it's, it's motorized recreationists and mechanized recreationists. So mountain bikes, snowmobiles, motorbikes, etc., and all sorts of new kinds of machines are being developed all the time now. It's kind of its own frightening phenomenon. Um, E-bikes, new kinds of snowmobiles. I don't even know what they're called. It's like a cross between a mountain bike and a snowmobile, and they're able to go way more places with way less effort and just and so penetrate deeper into the wilderness on a essentially snowmobile. So recreation, um, it, it's like, it's, it has become really opposed to quietude. So let me see if I can put all of this together, what I have in my mind here. So what's what's happened with with there's this recreation industry that is linked to capitalism um to ever expanding and and that's what the the new west has done it's like expand 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 like capitalism does but expand our recreation areas too and 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 it's all tied to really expand our fun it's like expand enjoyment it's like that's the promise of, of capitalism. It's like you can always keep trying to have more and more and more, and you can fend off um, what is difficult about quietude, like to actually live inside your own skin, um, to be still and quiet and to not have to be on the go, on the go, on the go, um, celebrating some performance or acquisition um, that will take you to the next performance or acquisition because if you aren't getting on to the next one, then you've got to sit quietly inside your own skin. Um, and really most of humanity, I will say as a psychoanalyst, is not able to do that, to really be in a state of quietude. Um, do we have the possibility of transforming as a collective to a people who can do that? I, I think we do. And I think we're at a really critical time in the history of humankind in this regard uh, too. But yeah, this, uh, this quietude, I think, is so important. It's like what we're doing with, with wild lands in the, in the subdividing um, or, um, you know, continual chopping up through, I'll take this and you take that of this piece of wild land that the collaboration groups are doing um, is... Uh, is promoting activities that are fast, you know, the mountain biking and the motorized recreations. It's like they want to go far into the wilderness. They want to perform. They want to, um, you know, brag with their selfies and their movies about look at look at my great performance. This is all, this is all the hubris and the self destructiveness and the that which is opposed to quietude of, of capitalism, of what capitalism, um, I think, largely unwittingly promotes or is, um, or, or, is um, or, or you could say it's part and parcel of capitalism. So let me break there and see where yeah. we're at. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think we pretty much just cut through the economics 
into what I believe is actually the force behind the economics, which is our psychology. Now, a lot of folks will maybe disagree. And, and I think it's a little bit of both. It's a biofeedback thing, as in, I believe that our discontent, so our desire for constant stimulation to fill that void and, and all that. So we have capitalism and then we can buy stuff and we can do a, a new thing and it doesn't really work over the long term, term, but in the short term, it sort of does. And then of course, capitalism existing does encourage that more and more with advertising and then keeping up with the Joneses and stuff like that. But I don't think that until we address the psychological aspects and, and we no longer require that, we no longer have as, or at least we learn to manage our cravings, that is when some of these economic systems maybe can start shifting or crumbling. I see it. So there's this quote from Breitbart. He's, he's a right-wing guy, but he's, he was right about this. I think the idea that politics is downstream of culture. So politics ends up being what people are kind of already doing in their lives and their beliefs. And then, so I think it's almost like economics might be downstream of psychology. Like we create these economic system rather than there was just some guy who came up with this idea and is forcing it on us. I, I do think we, we are prisoners of it, but at the same time, we are in many ways willing, willing prisoners. We kind of like our imprisonment. And so when you talk about this aspect of recreation, which a lot of folks are like, what the hell's wrong with having a bike? And it's like, well, you know, we, we can get into that more. And we did discuss that on, on other podcasts, but I think the idea of doing versus being. So when I go into the wilderness, sure, I like to go for hikes and I like to, to go out there, but it, it's less about reaching some goal or bagging some peak. And at least these days, it's more about just I'm being out there in nature. But if you're on your bicycle, yeah, you're, you're like, I want to get out there faster. You, you don't really see the landscape because you're constantly looking for wheels and, and stuff like that. So it's a different way of experiencing. Uh, ultimately, see, I, I have mixed feelings about this because part of me is like, well, these folks are potential allies and we might disagree on on whether or not there should be a, a bicycle on this trail versus just a hiking trail or no trail at all. But we probably all agree that we shouldn't be logging or mining in this area. But the problem I've seen, and you can comment on this if you like, is that these recreationalists, for the most part, aren't really that interested in preservation. They're, they're really not. They're there to acquire more land so they can ride on it. Do you think that there is any overlap though that we can that we might be spoiling by coming out against these folks? Uh, um, that's a really good question. I don't have an immediate answer to it. Let me make a few comments and then see where we might between ourselves go with your question. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think sort of as a preface maybe um, to another thing. Uh, there is a, another difference with the, it's not just uh, about mountain biking versus let's say hiking. Um, it's not just different forms of movement through the landscape, but um, one, of course, mountain biking is much faster. And so um, you can, that displaces wildlife um, more um, disruptively than hikers do. And there have been a number of studies that demonstrate that, that in fact. Um, but, and, and yeah, like you said, I mean, those who are bombing through the wilds are clearly not in a state of quietude and clearly aren't enjoying the wild. They're enjoying a big park, um, uh, a big bike park um, and a gorgeous bike park. And they enjoy that. But yeah, there's no quietude there. But, you know, there's another really. And, and so I'm, I'm not forgetting your question, but I want to say also there's another real danger here. Uh, with mountain biking, like, like, so for example, in Big Sky, Montana, um, where the, 
the highlight uh, Parcupine Buffalo Harn Wilderness Study Area has been really contested. Um, environmental groups, major environmental groups have agreed to seed uh, two of the those drainages. So those are three drainages, three, you know, canyons, creek drainages, the highlight, the Parcupine and the Buffalo Harn. Um, and those last two or um, the farther south uh, in the Gallatin Range. Um, they, they're all part of a, of a wilderness study area. Um, and these two are lower elevation valleys. And so they don't have a lot of vertical relief. So they're relatively um, mountain bike riding friendly. Um, and the porcupine, um, drains out right into the Gallatin River, right across the river and the highway from Big Sky. And so it is possible to get on your mountain bike or your dirt bike, because dirt bikes, motorbikes are allowed in there also um, under non-wilderness um, designation uh, to, to get on your bike right at your hotel and ride right into the porcupine and ride right up in there. And so um, what's gonna happen is that's gonna become a destination mountain biking resort um, if, if uh, this collaborative recommendation goes to fruition. Um, people will come from all over the West from farther than just the Western US and, um, and you'll have way more mountain bikes in there than you have now. Um, and so it's, and as human population continues to grow, yeah. you're gonna have more pressure from that. So um, yeah, it's just, it becomes, so what you have then is a flooding of these two beautiful drainages, which you can access very easily on these bikes too, because even, crossing over from one drainage to the other is relatively gentle. Um, the porcupine and the buffalo horn. And so they, they're both lower elevation drainages adjacent to each other. They're, and they are adjacent to Yellowstone Park. And um, they, they just are vital for wildlife. And that's, the, it's, they're not gonna be um, suitable for much wildlife habitation if this really comes down especially with expanding human population and and into this part of the country and with this becoming a destination mountain biking resort um, and maybe even a destination dirt bike riding resort. I don't know if the mm. if there's a kind of a community bonding around that. I don't know the dirt biking community well enough to know how much that's a risk as a destination kind of manifestation, but, but it is for mountain biking. And so there is all of that kind of threat, Josh. And then, um, oh gosh. Oh, but also I think we have to be realistic with human population expansion, explosion, and our failure to figure out a way to control and even reduce the human population. Um, you know, more and more hikers going into these areas becomes questionable too. Yep. And how far do hikers go in? Um, typically it's less, it tends to be less of a worry because hikers, most hikers aren't going to go in as far. Right. Um, most hikers who are going to go in a great distance aren't going to go in super fast. So, I mean, the, by the very nature of the activity, it's less impact, but you get enough people um, it's it's too much impact. So yeah. I mean, I think we've got to look at that too as our population explodes and as even hiking, recreation and running, there's a whole nother thing, the trail running phenomenon gets bigger because there's speed too. And so going farther in with bigger numbers of people yeah. and displacing wildlife yet again, I think we've got to look at all of that. So I've come a long ways from your question about, you know, can mountain bikers be allies for preservation. So I guess then I could probably pretty quickly cap off this 
spate of comments by saying, uh, uh, yeah, they could be if they were mindful and really deeply concerned about all the things I've just said, equally concerned about it um, as, as conservationists, as grassroots conservationists are. Yeah, well, I think that's a great summary. And I do think it's important be, to discuss this because of course we want to fight against the extractive industries and development and things like that that are a major threat, but we've also got to see who are our potential allies. And you would think that these folks would be, but the thing is, I think if you look, what percentage of mountain bikers are also protesting the mining and logging of certain areas? I think only if it applies to their ability to ride on certain trails. So I haven't personally seen them hugely involved, which isn't to say that all of them, I mean, I've ridden mountain bikes. I'm not a forest mountain bike rider. I want to hike in the forest. I've done most of my mountain biking on back dirt roads in Vermont and some Utah Jeep trails, you know, so everywhere else, I want to be a part of the landscape. But here are a few observations I've made to just preface maybe one idea I have that might be a compromise. And, and so let's see what you think. But just to preface some of my, my relationship with some in the mountain biking community, I think I talked about this on this other podcast I did with, I believe it was with Gary McFarlane, who's a friends of the Clearwater in Idaho. But anyway, so um, yeah, I remember a situation, well, to take it even away from mountain bikes for a second, there's this place called Waldo Lake in Oregon. This is beautiful, pristine lake. And you're obviously, you can take your kayak on it, which is what I did, but they also allowed motorboats. And the thing is, obviously the impacts on the water quality and then just the noise, you know, my silent kayak does not impact their travel, but their loud boat does impact mine. And that's a little different, but it does also scare off wildlife. But the thing is this, it, it took like to circumnavigate that lake, probably, you know, better part of a day by a kayak. So that's a full day trip, but to circumnavigate it in a motorboat, it's like, what, 15, 20 minutes. So they need more, they need more, they need more. So that right there inherently is going to require more landscape and then like what you said with hiking all right i can people hike in you know a few miles five ten maybe at most i mean very rarely do people even hike 10 miles these days but um pretty easy to get that far on a mountain bike and for sure a motor thing you know you can go out there i experienced a lot with i'm a cross-country skier and then there's snowmobilers and it's like again they you know other than them messing up the the trail i hear them from miles away they don't hear my So I think one element that is a deeper component of this, just at least to understand what's going on is that in terms of an ethics, it's like we have this right, well, I have a right to have my thing out there to do something, but I don't have the right to not have that thing done to me. And like, so, so I I think we're dealing with that with COVID. There are people like, well, I have a right to go around and, you know, breathe on anyone I want and not pay attention to any public health measures. Like, well, I also have a right to not be infected by you. So which, which rules? And then I, one final thing I would say about in terms of, I, of a, a mountain bike organization that actually was anti-environmental. So not just selfishly about the landscape, but will undermine all sorts of other things. I was reporting on as a journalist, Rocky Flats, which is an area here in Colorado where they used to manufacture nuclear warheads. So there's plutonium contamination that is 100% documented across the landscape. And in this refuge area that they wanted to open up to mountain biking, a lot of folks pushed back against it. The mountain bike folks pushed hard to open these areas despite the plutonium in the air, despite the fact that they'd be kicking it up because it's in the dust. And that's when I knew, oh man, not only are these folks kind of environmental indifferent, but they would sell out such an important cause and that might protect all these people just so they can have another 10 miles to, to ride for like 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, so I do see that there is maybe uh, an unbridgeable gap in regards to certain aspects of the values. But what about this? What about, okay, so yeah, public lands, which are our last most precious lands, 
yeah, I, I don't think that there should be any more areas open up to recreation. But what if there was a collaboration between conservationists or preservationists or whatever you want to phrase it and recreationalists to acquire private land to switch that over to kind of a public lands recreation. And then, yeah, you can use that for your bicycle because before that was just cut over timberland. And then of course we gradually turn it into wilderness over time and we'll, we'll stab them in the back eventually. But in the meantime, there could be that common ground. What do you think about that? I think that's a great idea. I think, um, I think that would be hard to sell to a lot of these <laughs> biking groups. Okay. I, I, do you know what I mean? Like, yes, I, I, do. I, I do. I do. I think they're really enamored with the idea of, of going into the wilderness. I mean, I, I, I don't think they really um, grasp the harm they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think they're, they, they experience the beauty of the place. And I think they, they, play a sort of a mental trick on themselves um, that they can believe they're experiencing wild nature while they're in this, um, I don't know, like there's a term jouissance in psychoanalysis, um, in Lacanian psychoanalysis. It actually has a variety of meanings depending on its context, but the way I'm using it is it, it literally translated it into English it, it from French it means enjoyment but but it's a certain kind of enjoyment it's like and it's an insistence on an enjoyment that never ends or a constantly available enjoyment and and so it's it's very much linked to Freud's notion of the death drive so it's like where there doesn't have to be any self-restraint you just can enjoy 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 and even under contemporary culture, there's almost like this superego mandate. You must enjoy. And if you don't, well, then you must understand there's something wrong with you. Um, so in other words, to celebrate quietude or, or Freud's notion of the life drive, which both of which in hair, um, you know, accepting and living generatively within limits um, and finding ways, discovering ways, developing ways to live richly within limits. Um, it's like the, the insistence on jouissance opposes that. And, and so I think there's something in the mountain biking community that is of jouissance. We, we can go kind of balls to the wall and all is good, all is good, all is good. And we're even taking in nature. I mean, look at this beautiful place where we're riding in. It's very exciting. It's very moving, but right. it, it's anti-life. Well, yeah, there's a bit of the adrenaline junkie stuff. And I've been, I've not been a huge adrenaline junkie. My, my adrenaline or my challenging oneself, right? Because I, I think that is a worthwhile thing in terms of, okay, here's the natural world. What's my place in it? And kind of how can I push myself. So the idea of like, all right, I'm going to ride my bike up the hill, or I'm going to climb to the top of the peak. I'm kind of over that sort of stuff. You know, once in a while, I'll climb a 14er, but frankly, there's too many damn people on those. And because yeah, Colorado hiking is too many people. But personally, yeah. it's like, I'll go into the middle of a desert wilderness, you know, I'll walk out there. And yeah, that scares the shit out of me. That's all the adrenaline I need. You know, I don't need to just do it. And if I need to get my heart rate up, I'll just do some push-ups or something like that. I don't necessarily need to utilize the landscape as, as my gym, but yeah, it's a, it's a little different way of looking at it. I do think there's still overlap, but let's, let's maybe pull it away for a second and try to try to maybe wrap up on a couple things and, and a couple things I want to ask you about. So the compromise aspect and the psychology behind it. So we're talking a lot about compromising around recreation, which for sure is a concern. And that's more and more gotten on my radar. So I think that's totally legitimate. Then of course there's, you know, allowing of logging, grazing, whatever you have it, which are even far more damaging. So that the concept of an of environmental group, you can call it a mainstream group, it's a grassroots group, who cares? It's a group that is saying, 
well, we, we got to give a little bit and giving a little bit in our personal interactions. That's a, a beautiful thing, right? Like I, I have a concept of principle versus preference. Like a principle is a, a deep seated thing. No, we're not giving up public lands versus a preference is something that is, is not anywhere as deep seated, but so we have the compromise and we're like, why, what, what is the idea behind it? And I know you don't want to be pinned down for this is what they're all thinking. Cause you're, you're right. Not everyone is thinking the same thing or anything like that, but I'm wondering if the following is an element. So obviously part of this, it might be a, a fear of losing, right? Because these environmental groups, they have to have wins in order to prove it to funders, to prove it to the public. So, I mean, even though the fact that we're losing every year, more and more, if you can say, look, we did a little thing, you kind of need that to have evidence uh, to get grants and things like that. So that, that I think is, is just pretty provable. So I'm not even asking about that, but I'm gonna ask you about this. Do you think that maybe they actually have a fear of winning? As in, they might, if they pushed hard enough, if we all said, hey, guess what? Public lands are now off limits to this and this and that and the fallout that that would cause, which maybe would have some economic impact to a certain degree, maybe would have some social societal impact. They're the ones who would be blamed for it. There's the, they're the ones that would have the responsibility or we would that we made this so. Do you think that might be a little part of this? That we made what so? That what that, would be fallout? Let's, let's say we're like, all right, no more, no more logging on public lands. And then we won, we did it then a lot of these environmental groups are like, holy crap, we didn't actually think we would do that. Now there are gonna be a handful of out of work loggers, that'll be our fault. Now there'll be this and this and they'll blame us for it. So that fear of winning, that fear of success might be a part of this. Oh, okay. Like the fear of the fallout of the success, right? All, all sorts of aspects, but certainly that's probably the biggest part of it. Okay. Um... Uh, you know, let me let me go to this other thing you had brought up and see how much this addresses what you're asking and then and then alter your question to address what it might miss. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the idea of wins because you, you make a, a very good point. I'm glad you brought it up. I, I think it is a lot of what's driving um, the NGOized component or motive of, of uh, mainstream environmental groups. They want to be able to show on their ledger they got more wilderness designated. Um, and and so they can trade away half of a wilderness study area, say, and then say they trade away 75,000 acres of 150,000 and they can say, but we, look, we got 75,000 acres designated into wilderness in an area that hasn't had wilderness designated in such and such a period of time. Isn't this wonderful? And that's pretty easy to sell yep. to an uninformed um, public or even insufficiently informed membership and dues paying membership um, versus this um, this ethic of Terra and Demos. So by which I mean, and you know from that counterpunch article that you read from, um, that we value um, the welfare of all people, demos, the people, the people of the demos of democracy, we value all people and we value all the planet and all aspects and the interrelatedness of all all components of the earth. Um, And we're aware of how Terra and demos, those two, how the people and the earth are interdependent or, well, how we are dependent on the earth, the earth is not dependent on us um, to exist. It will exist in some form, but it depends on us to exist in anything like the, you know, beautiful form. We, we still somewhat have it less and less. Um, but so, yeah, there's, 
there is a a way of of guiding yourself as an environmental group in your actions and in what you compromise that is based on does my compromise promote the the welfare of the interdependence of the entire biotic community of an ecosystem and of the planet and of all people mm -hmm. right so that's a tall order um it's like if if you hold yourself to such a tall a, a tall order ethic um but you have it articulated well then you can decide well does this compromise damage is it does it contravene or, or compromise that ethic or is it consonant with that ethic mm -hmm. and that no, there's nothing like that question being asked no you're right yeah i think that's the heart of it i think it does come into an ethics issue instead of just a business decision or a pr decision and i don't think that's being taken into account. And the question is, how can we raise these issues to these groups? And the answer is we can talk to the individuals and they'll privately agree with us behind the scenes as I've experienced and nothing will really necessarily change on the larger level. So maybe it's what I keep coming back to is there needs to be another model and there needs to be some form of solidarity in that other model rather than the idea of tearing down the old structure. I think we have to build up another structure to replace it first. Yeah, well, that's a, a huge and a huge <laughs> and a hugely important question to have before ourselves. Um, absolutely. You know, um, cr critical theorists and cultural critics talk about um oh and this goes to the practicality defense of the collaborating compromise model too by the way um they they talk about the critics talk about the possible versus the impossible so things like you know that are easy to point to as oh if we broker these deals we can possibly accomplish such and such versus if we hold out this moral high ground it's impossible to achieve mm. uh, when when really it isn't it's just it requires um the subversion really of of sacred cons mm -hmm. and and that's that's a scary thing um it requires standing on your own two feet and deciding what you what ethics you think are defensible and you know, and trying to parse out what is my thinking versus what have I just been inculcated into uncritically believing is my thinking. Yes, yes. Well, I, I think it's super crucial. And I mean, I do know that some folks are like, oh, come on, you guys are just, what are you talking about? Like, we just have to take action. I think the answer is, well, of course we have to take action, but we have to do some thinking about what action makes the most sense. And if we're just going to plow along with what has always been done, I don't think that's been successful. So yeah, we do have to have these conversations. That's why I wanted to have you on to talk about these deeper root topics, because I, I, I think without them, no amount of Facebook marketing or flashy slogans is going to really accomplish much. So that's kind of that's kind of the gist of it. So yeah, Joseph, I really appreciate you coming on Green Root Podcast to talk about this. I really appreciate all the work that you're doing, and we're going to continue to have these conversations and put them out there in the world and take action around them after having all of these considerations rather than just acting blindly. <laughs>